Today's scripture is Isaiah chapter 53, verse, verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Marcus, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. Um, glad to be in front of you this morning. Um, let me be quick to acknowledge and say to you that the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1, says to me and any other preacher, any person that occupies this space, that we will be judged more strictly, more harshly, because of what we do. So I stand before you this morning completely humbled, um, and during this week as I studied to present you the scriptures this morning, um, I will be judged more harshly for what I'm going to do in the next 20 to 30 minutes. Probably close to 35, let's be honest. 
bow your heads with me. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we love you. Heavenly Father, as we approach uh, this time in the, in the service, Lord, we pray that you will open up our ears and our hearts will become fertile ground. Heavenly Father, I pray that you use my voice. Lord, that you present the case for Jesus Christ before those who sit here today and those who will watch online. I am so grateful to be alive, so thankful to be able to worship you, Jesus Christ. I give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In the State of the Union Address in 2003, amid war in Afghanistan and heightened brewing storm in Iraq, a health crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, our world felt hopeless. President George W. Bush presented to the American people a plan to bring hope. Hope amid war and crisis around the world. To bring hope to end the epidemic of HIV AIDS in Africa. As he gave his speech, he, he recounted that in one country in sub-Saharan Africa, one in three adults carried the virus. 14 million children had been orphaned by AIDS. 30 million people had HIV. Three of those 30 million were children. The president said in his State of the Union in January 2003 that because the AIDS, AIDS virus was considered a death sentence, many people did not seek treatment. Almost all who, who, who sought treatment were turned away. He quotes a doctor in rural South Africa that said in his frustration, we have no medicine. Many hospitals tell people, you have AIDS, we can't help you. Go home and die. In an age of miraculous medicine, no person should have to hear those words. That was 20 years ago. We now face a much different epidemic in our society. I'm not speaking of COVID this morning. I'm speaking of a spiritual epidemic, particularly as people of faith in the church. I'm not talking about a disease that attacks the immune system. We face a degree of hopelessness not seen in a generation. Teen suicide rates, my brothers and sisters, are through the roof. The dissatisfaction with life amongst us Anxiety, depression, rampant alcohol and drug abuse, addiction to social affirmation through media consumption. If you've noticed, everyone, most people are grasping for hope. There is a poverty of hope in our society. We, people of faith, who ought to be rich in hope, face similar obstacles. When I find myself in a coffee shop across for someone, it happens all the time in this city, devoid of hope, dissatisfied with the church, spiritually bereft of joy. Unlike that rural South African doctor, I have a source of hope. I have some spiritual balm for care. We as a church have access to spiritual riches in a vast ocean of, of just poverty. In what seems like a tidal wave of spiritual poverty and hopelessness, I would like to encourage you this morning from an unlikely place, the book of Isaiah. Hidden in plain sight, 
is a passage of Scripture that brought hope to the original readers and to us today. We'll take a look at Isaiah 53, verse by verse, up to verse 9. If you have your devices of your Bibles, please meet me there. I see the ushers in the back. If you need a Bible, just kindly raise up your hands, and the ushers will give you one. That is our gift to you to read. If you don't have one, don't be ashamed. Just go ahead and throw it up there, and they will get you one. Thank you. I will walk you through or walk us through, and we will answer a few questions that I posed to this text when I first read it. Questions along the way, like, why should we trust this? Who is the passage talking about? As Kim read, I don't know if you noticed, the pronoun he or him is all over that passage. Who is the passage talking about? Why is this passage necessary? And I will answer a few other questions along the way. The title for this morning's sermon, if you're a note taker, is clear, it's, it's true. Jesus is the one. It's true. Jesus is the one. Why trust this? The prophet Isaiah is the writer of this passage. I will start by reading the first five verses. He poses a question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, there it is, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and, he, and we esteemed him not. I'll stop there, verse 3. Throughout this book that we've been studying in the past few weeks, Isaiah has brought Hebrew poetry to express what God has shown him about the future. Isaiah writes kind of in three, in three stages if you read the passages and you sit into them. One, in some places, he tells the immediate future, like next week or next month. Then he tells the distant future, like 700 years in the future. Then he tells what I call the far future, which is beyond even us today. So there's three levels of prophecies that he's working through. And when you read it, sometimes you get confused. Is he talking about next week, next year, or he's talking about 700 years, or he's talking about beyond me? He has written about the demise of the kingdom of Israel, which happened about 100 years after he wrote. He has written about the long-awaited Messiah in chapter 7, chapter 9. He talks about the virgin birth. He names the names of the roles of the Messiah. He calls them the wonderful counselor in chapter 9. He has written about the future in chapter 40 and other places of the book. We come now to chapter 53, where Isaiah brings a prophecy of great hope. He is painting a simultaneous picture of the life and the death of the Messiah. He poetically depicts his birthplace and death and burial place through poetry. He paints Jesus' ministry. Let's take a look. Verse 1. Who has heard this? He's asking a question. Who is going to believe what is coming? He is saying, Isaiah is asking the question, what I'm going to write, what God has given me that I'm going to write in the next few lines, you're not going to believe this. Who will believe and accept this as true? The arm of the Lord, when he writes about the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord throughout prophecies always signifies the God's strength. 
So when he says, who can believe this, I'm going to talk about God's strength, and what follows doesn't, doesn't look like strength to us. God is going to reveal his strength in the he that he's talking about, but it seems counterintuitive because the he that he's talking about gets injured, gets killed. Verse 2, he says, a tender shoot out of dry ground, a reference to the humility, right? This person that he's talking about will have humble beginnings. He will, be, he will be born and live in a place that is least expected, right? He will not be powerful. This power is, this, the power of this individual that, that, that Isaiah is talking about is not an earthly power. He won't inherit power from an earthly source. It's what he's trying to communicate poetically there. A root out of dry ground. His power, his beauty will not come from the earth. He will be someone remarkable, visually not eye-catching. Verse 3 and 4, this person is going to be unimpressive. He's going to be rejected. He was fully human, so he could identify with the suffering of his people. He suffered himself. He was despised. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of Jesus' death. No one wanted to be like him. When Jesus was walking the earth, when he was going through these suffering, no one wanted to be like him in death. In fact, Isaiah says people hid their faces from him because his death was so gruesome. He would be abandoned and left by others, yet he would carry the grief and sorrows of many. Verse 5, he was pierced. Let me stop there. In the Hebrew, pierced, the word pierced implies not just a pinprick or a knife wound. It implies like an impaling, if you will. Like he would be pierced. He would lose. Something would go through him. Who is this? This person that is pierced. And how is he the Savior? How is this prophecy about the Messiah when the Messiah was supposed to be king and, and, and lead an army to, 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 to rule Israel? Who is so incredible that his wounds will heal other people? My wounds don't heal other people. I can't even heal my own wounds. Isaiah is delivering what I call a master class in Hebrew poetic prophetic poetry. He's forcing us as readers to unravel the mystery of this person. We talk about this all the time. When you read, when you read Hebrew poetry or you read prophecy, he is, the authors try to make you enter into the story so that you can unravel it for yourself so you have a moment of discovery as you go on. His wounds are healing more than physical things here, ladies and gentlemen. He is pierced, he is crushed, he is chastised for our transgressions and iniquities. What he's healing is more than physical. His wounds would heal our offenses against the law and our guilt. He is the Passover lamb. By the way, let me throw this in before I forget. This entire chapter, most of it, he's written in the past tense. Can I nerd out a little bit? I'm going to go there. He's written this 700 years before the Messiah is to come. 700 years plus. And he's writing in the past tense. Something that's in the future. What he's trying to tell you is that the God, the person he's writing about, is a timeless person. We've been in this two years now. I need some, come on. 
timeless. He's communicating. He wants you to discover God's timelessness. He's saying us human beings are bound by time, but this person that is coming that's going to be wounded is timeless. I've already seen it. God has already done it. Thank you. My brothers and sisters, who is this? Who is this mysterious person? In the summer of 2004, I got my first professional job. I was a teacher at a Christian school. I had only been a Christian for about five years. Guess that's long enough. <laughs> that summer, 24 years old, I get my classroom. I'm super nervous. I don't know if anybody teaches out there, first-year teacher. You're getting everything right, trying to fix everything. And the kids... My kids were eighth graders, going to have eighth graders. And uh, the kids were memorizing Isaiah 53 that summer. I had not, in five years, encountered that, this passage. So I said, I mean, if the kids are memorizing it, I should probably look at that. <laughs> so I started looking at it, and I started memorizing it. And I was confronted with the same question you probably had, that you probably have when you read this. Who is this? My, my knowledge of the Bible kind of worked in separate stories. Maybe some of you are this way in your faith right now, and that's okay. Where you see Adam and Eve, you see Moses, you see Noah, you see Joshua, you see David, you see Solomon, you see Deborah, you see Esther, and it seems like one story after the other. So I just imagined that Jesus would be the next story. What I was missing was that the Bible is a big story. It's an overarching story that Jesus just doesn't appear in the New Testament for the first time. He's way back in Chronicles. He's way back in Genesis. He's way back in Isaiah 53. Jesus didn't just come in the New Testament. The only person, ladies and gentlemen, is not a big secret here, that fits this description that Isaiah is writing about is a man named Jesus of Nazareth. The death that he's describing here is the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus. And in the summation of this chapter, he's clear, he's saying that Jesus is the one who is to come. He is the Messiah. There were people, there were all people all over, all over time who were performing miracles. There were people who were crucified in Jesus' time, but no one dotted every poetic, prophetic I, and no one crossed every Isaiah T. It's true. It's true. Jesus is the one. I will keep on going. Somewhere along the line, somebody was standing up out of their seat this morning, but that's all right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> somebody, somebody, the centrality of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Let's go into this. Who is he? If you're here for the first time, I'm glad you're here today. Jesus, if you look at verse 2, we're going to look kind of go backwards and forwards. In verse 2, Jesus is the one who was born in a stable amongst animals. He wasn't born in a castle. So he was a root out of dry ground. He grew up in Nazareth, which was a place where apparently not many good things came out of. John chapter 1, verses 43 and verses 43 or 46 talks about this. Jesus is calling his disciples, right? And he gets a hold of two men, Philip and Nathaniel. He said, Philip, Nathaniel, come roll with me. Let's go. Philip says to Nathaniel, 
I have found the one the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, and he is from Nazareth. Philip has encountered Jesus, and he said, dude, let me tell you something, man. I have found the one. Come with me. He is the one that the prophets were writing about in the Old Old Testament. Come with me. Here's what Nathaniel's response was. Can anything good come out of that place? (laughs) Nazareth. Now, whatever place you think in this country, whatever state you can think of, that nothing good comes out of, I won't mention it because I don't want that smoke. (laughs) Right? I'm not going to, I don't want to offend anybody's state or hometown. But whatever place you can think of, that nothing good comes out of is where Jesus came from in Nazareth, the place that everybody knew that nothing good came out of, thereby fulfilling the prophecy in, chapter, in, in verse 2 that he would come out of dry ground. The writers of Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't mention much about Jesus' appearance. They don't talk about Jesus' physical appearance. People were not, but Isaiah talks about it. Isaiah says people would not be drawn to him because of his looks. John 15 says, Jesus says in the world, he said, the world would hate me. The world would hate you because it hated me. Despite, ladies and gentlemen, despite the miracles, despite his great teachings, despite raising Lazarus from the dead, he was still hated. His disciples who hung out with him for three years, when, 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 he was, when he was arrested, they ran. No one stuck with him, thereby fulfilling that prophecy that he would be rejected. I don't know about you, but if there was somebody in my country, in my county, in my state, healing people and raising people from the dead, that's my guy. <laughs> that's who I want to hang out with. Because if it goes down, he's going to raise me up from the dead. <laughs> but he was hated. He was hated. Verse 7, Isaiah poetically gives the readers a window into Jesus' trial, death, and burial. That's picking me up in verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Jesus is arrested at the end of his life. He's convicted, he's tried, he's convicted, yet he didn't defend himself, if you read the scriptures. He was cut off. The Hebrew there is really clear. Cut off doesn't mean he was shunned, he was sent out. Cut off there means he was killed. When you're cut off from the land of the living, that's, that's, that's Hebrew language was saying, you are, you, are, you are killed violently. He was executed. It was a death that was violent. We know this. It was a death that was befitting for a criminal, but he was guiltless. He took the punishment, one commentator says, quietly and obediently. He was buried, right? Very important. He was buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave. Isaiah saw this 700 years before it happened. In John 19, a man named Joseph of Arimathea was the one who took Jesus, bound his body, and actually buried him. He was a rich man. So Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man, as Isaiah had predicted 700 years before. 
so many consequences, I'm sorry, not consequences, so many coincidences that it becomes evidence for the truth. How could there be so many coincidences? How can there be so many matches? It must be that Jesus is who he said he was. It must be that Jesus is the one. Every once in a while I face questions. You know, whenever you say you're a preacher, whether you're in a barbershop or not, right, somebody's going to ask you some questions. It's almost an invitation. The only place I discovered that that doesn't quite work when I say I'm a pastor is, is on a plane. <laughs> People just like, whoop, shut it down. I guess I'm not getting the drinks on this flight. <laughs> not be walling out on this plane today, sitting next to a preacher. But the questions that people ask are valid questions. Why was this necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did it all have to happen in this way? Isn't there a better course of action to deal with sin? All these questions are valid questions about God's character. To answer these questions, we have to look at God's character. God is just, and He's also merciful. He created a perfect world, and from the, beginning of, from the beginning of time, human beings begin to sin, to make choices that were contrary to God's will and commands. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, isn't always personal. It costs us, and it costs our fellow human beings. When I sin, it just doesn't affect me. Ever since Adam and Eve, every human being has been guilty of breaking God's law. I hope this is not a newsflash to you. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one in their right mind would disagree with what I just said, that we're all sinners. We all do things that we're not proud of. We all break the law. We all break God's law. There are victims of our sin. We suffer and others suffer as well in different ways. If God is just, right, follow me, if God is just, he cannot overlook or look away from sinful behavior. He would not be a just God, right, and a good God if everyone who sinned was automatically pardoned, was set free, right? He wouldn't be just. If I, uh, let me just tell you, I'm just going to put myself out there right now. When, when I was a teacher in spring break, I would go to the courthouse. You ask me why? For no reason. For no absolute reason. I would go to the courthouse and I would watch cases. Not because I was bored or because I was interested. And, and, and most people who walked before the judge, if the, judge, if the judge was just letting people off, oh, you did this? Oh, thank you for letting me know. You're free to go, right? Oh, you did this? You're free to go. Would he be a just judge? He wouldn't. So God cannot overlook our sin, and all of us have sinned. The penalty for sin is death. The consequence for sin is death. Now, if we have all sinned, and we have no way to rectify our sins or correct our ways and reconcile ourselves to God, we are in a hopeless state. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, when individuals or groups sinned and wanted to be reconciled with God, something had to die to atone for that sin. 
Don't glaze over on me now. An animal would be sacrificed, right? There was a ritual that happened that the, the, the priest, you would go to the priest, present an animal without blemish, and said, this animal is going to take over my sin. This is where we get the, the, the American idiomatic expression, scapegoat, right? The scapegoat takes on everybody else's problems. So when, when you sin, you present the scapegoat to the priest, and the priest would kill it and do a particular ritual, right? The, 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 the goat or sheep would be sacrificed as an offering to God for the sins of the people. It wasn't working well, and it wasn't sufficient. Here's the beauty of this. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. God says to his people at some point, I will give my own life as an offering to atone for your sins so you don't have to live with the anxiety and uncertainty of a sinful life. I will show you my love and I'll come in proximity to you and give my life as a sacrifice. God provided himself in Jesus who was the only sinless person to ever walk the earth, the only one qualified as a sacrifice. It's so simple, it's shocking to believe. Just like when you presented a, a sheep or goat that was spotless, God is saying, here is Jesus who's going to live amongst you. He's going to be spotless and sinless. He's the only one that's going to be qualified to receive the penalty that you should receive as a sinner. Someone asked me one time, what about human sacrifice? Doesn't the Bible condemn human sacrifice? If Jesus is being sacrificed, it's not a human sacrifice. That's the beauty of the Trinitarian God. He's laying down his own life, but he's a son and God at the same time. He's willfully laying down his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Joel, thank you for reading that. We're on the same wavelength this morning. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Could Jesus, if I was a cynic, which sometimes I can't be, could Jesus have planned all of this? You ever think about that? Could he have matched his life to fit the prophecies of the past? Could he have known the Scriptures well enough to plan that all these things would happen? To the, right, the skeptics and the cynics might ask these questions, and these are great questions, but I would answer those questions with questions of my own. Could he have known the place of his birth? Could he have planned where he lived? Could he have planned that he would have no beauty that no one would desire him? Could he have planned that he would be rejected only by his own disciples? Could he have planned his crucifixion, his gruesome death, his piercing? Could he have planned his trial where he said nothing? Could he have planned his gravesite? Could he have planned his innocence? And even if he planned all of those things, as improbable as that sounds, how do you explain the miracles? If he ain't the one, they say in the streets, he ain't the one. <laughs> how do you explain the sinless life? How do you explain all of the miracles? Somebody better call Lazarus and tell Jesus he ain't the one. Somebody better call the lady at the well to tell her that he didn't know her life. Somebody better call all those people he fed that, man, that dude is, is not legit, right? Somebody better call Jairus' daughter, y'all not hearing me this morning, that she needed to be well. Somebody better call those folks at the party, man, this dude just produced some, some really vicious wine. <laughs> 
Somebody better call all those people that Jesus touched one by one. The evidence, the coincidences are so many that they become evidence. Jesus is the one. The crucifixion is the event that Isaiah is talking about here. If all that isn't enough for you right now, if you're still pushing back, if you're still giving me grief this morning, what about the resurrection? Man, come on, somebody. What about the resurrection? You know what Jesus is saying there? You know what I thought about last night? Jesus is saying, like the great modern British philosopher Adele said, hello from the other side. (laughs) Somebody got that one. If he raised himself from the dead, he has to have power over death. If he met all these circumstances, all these prophecies, he has to be the one. He couldn't make this up. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't. Now I'm going to ask you to put your mental tray tray tables up, right? Bring your seat back in the upright full position. We're going to land this plane right now. With the last question, what if this is true? How would you respond if this is true? What if Jesus is the one and the passage is talking about him years into the future? Let me bring your attention deeper into the Bible, into the New Testament, to the book of Acts. Would you turn there with me? Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 34. I'm going to read into you hearing a quick story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There is a desert place. And when he rose and went, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah and the prophet, and the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, and asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip up to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe to his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The Ethiopian had traveled hundreds of miles to worship. He's an educated African, able to read Hebrew, a high official of Queen Candace in Africa, possibly turned away from, the, from worshiping because he had been castrated. He was desperate to know who Isaiah 53 was talking about, right? And the passage he's reading says, he didn't open his mouth. Verse 34 in this is the beauty. Verse 34, Acts chapter 8. And a eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And begin with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
What good news for someone who may have been turned away from worshiping and is heading back home, reading this, trying to understand. So many barriers between these two men. Philip is, Philip is, is, is Jewish. The African is there. He's Ethiopian. But the good news of Jesus brings them together. It's telling you some kind of story, but you need to pick that up. Philip is one of Jesus' disciples, right? Shortly after Jesus has died and resurrected, and he had been seen by many people, right? The, 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 the word is spreading. The Ethiopian has come from a far way to, to, to understand what's happening here. And he just runs into Philip. The Holy Spirit places Philip in his life, and he tells him, don't you see? Jesus is the one who, the, who was prophesied about years ago. Everything in this passage checks out with Jesus. This is what the uproar is all about. Imagine the eunuch saying, you mean I can serve Jesus? I can go back to Africa and tell my people about this man, Jesus? I am welcomed in his presence? The, spirit, the Bible said the Spirit carried Philip away, and the eunuch went away rejoicing. This is true. Based on this passage, there has been a Christian church in Ethiopia for thousands of years. Westerners weren't the first people to bring the gospel to Jesus, what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus is the one the passage is talking about. He is the one who fits the description of the suffering servant who was wounded, who was pierced, despised, and rejected. This is why people travel. People leave their comfort of their homes and go across the world, go to unknown places without electricity or running water to tell people about Jesus because this message is so powerful. If it hasn't hit you yet, I hope it hits you on the way home. It's so powerful that people give up all they have to tell more people about Jesus. It's too good to keep to yourself. Y'all not hearing me this morning? It's too, good to keep, it's too good to keep to yourself. If someone was predicted 700 years before they lived and, and, and they matched and they resurrected from the dead, not only did they resurrect themselves, they actually, they actually healed people and did all of these miracles and their teachings are infallible. You have to believe that they are who they are. Yeah. Last week, I was sitting in Jason's Deli. Upon, the, upon Dave made a great connection with me and another pastor, and one of the pastors said, man, I want you to meet somebody. I want you to come to Jason's Deli and meet this guy who lost his dad. You know, sometimes I don't have a lot of room in the schedule, so I'm like, ah, oh, man, I got to go to this lunch. I'm going to go meet this dude. I don't know what's going on. So I said, I'll do it. I've never been to Jason's Deli before. <laughs> when I sat down, a man named Steve McCulley was across from me. He was the son of one of the men who was killed alongside Jim's, Jim Elliott in Ecuador 60 plus years ago. His dad had gone to Ecuador to share the good news of Jesus in the Amazon jungle. In January 8th, on January 8th, 1956, five missionaries, if, you, if, you're, if you've been in the church long enough, you know this story. Five missionaries were killed by tribesmen, tribesmen in, the, in the Amazon. Though those missionaries had guns, they didn't fight. They were speared to death. They were all in their late 20s. Forty plus years later, as the story goes, the widows of these slain men returned to Ecuador 
with their kids and their grandkids to meet the men who killed their fathers, husbands, and grandfathers. And the men who had done the killing had become believers in the good news of Jesus Christ. The movie about their lives is called The End of the Spear. If I tell you this, I was sitting in the middle of of Jason's deli. I wept openly as he's recounting the story of seeing the man who killed his dad 40 plus years later. He's, He's not even in tears, but I'm in tears. And I realize why the pastor wanted me to meet him. Everywhere in the world, Jesus' name is known, and he changes lives. Believers are worshiping him, ladies and gentlemen, this morning in Seoul, Korea, in Melbourne, Australia, in Bangalore, India, in Cairo, Egypt, in Accra, Ghana, in London, England, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and in Tucson, Arizona. The message is the same. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one, and in him, and in him alone, we can find salvation and freedom. There's a song we sing here. I would like to read into your hearing the lyrics this morning. You can close your eyes and just listen, or you can look at the screen. We'll, I'll read these lyrics to you and see how it hits you this morning. The song is called In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love, and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Bow your heads. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life and your sacrifice that you made years and years ago so that we can stand before God completely guiltless. God, we thank you 
We pray that this message just doesn't go into one ear and go out the next, but that it changes our lives. I'm so grateful that I found you, Jesus. You changed my life, and I hope you change the life of others. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.